0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of October 27th, 2022. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Ore diggers strike gold. The golden transcript. Minds Winner's Senior Day Game to Six-Pete Conference Title by Corinne Westman. Accessibility Upgrades Planned at Red Rocks. Amphitheater Plans More, Better Spots for Those Who Are Hearing Impaired or Have Mobility Issues. By Deb Hurley-Brobst for the Golden Transcript. Pumpkins A Plenty. Pumpkin Proceeds Benefit Habitat for Humanity. Staff reports for the Jeffco transcript. 102-year-old World War II vet in Colorado share stories. Leo Lewis was Master Sergeant in Army Air Corps by Kyle Cook and Brian Willey, the Rocky Mountain PBS. And U.S. Senate candidates debate mental health for first time ever by Jennifer Brown of the Colorado Sun in the Arvada Press and following up with various articles. Ore Diggers Strike Gold. Mines wins senior day game to six Pete Conference title by Corinne Westman. Tristan Simmelsberger's momentous senior day goal was five years and ten minutes in the making. After nine scoreless minutes against Westminster, Colorado, School of Mines' corner kick bounced around until the Westminster goalie punched it up in the air. Simmelsberger moved underneath it, popped it up, and Bicycle kicked it into the goal, causing the ore Diggers on the field and in the stands to go crazy in celebration. It was a special memory and a special goal for me, said Simmelsberger, a graduate student and five-year Mines player. The Orediggers beat the Griffins 4-0 on October 23rd, claiming their sixth straight regular season conference title. Mines, which finished the regular season 12-4-2 and and overall and 9-1 and in conference play, secures the number one seed in the Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference Tournament. It plans to host a semifinal game at 2.30 p.m. October 30th. It's been a fantastic year. Senior goalkeeper Brian Dougherty said, Lots of ups and downs. We started out slow, but we've been on fire lately. Hopefully, we'll keep riding that until the tournament. Having a blaster, The Oredegers sent their eight seniors out in style during the October 23rd game. Simmelsberger's goal hyped up the entire team, but especially his fellow senior forwards, Azad Eliozer and Eric Boone. Just 75 seconds after the first goal, Eliezer score, scored off an assist from Boone, giving Mines a 2-0 lead 11 minutes into the game. That gave the diggers the confidence they needed, Iliozer described, and everyone just started having fun. Simmelsberger and Doherty noted how all the diggers had good minutes, especially the seniors. Dougherty and fellow senior goalkeeper Kenneth Sims wa- switched at halftime while the younger Ordigers made big plays later in the game. Sophomore forward Gabriel Rodriguez assisted on junior midfielder Ian Kugler's goal in the 38th minute and had his own in the 66th. Overall, the Ordigers ended the game with 20 total shots, 15 shots on goal, five corners, and 56% possession time. The seniors complimented the team effort and said their final regular season game couldn't have been better. I was kind of scared about this game because I've been playing soccer for 18 years, Ilioser said, but we won and the season keeps going. Simmelsberger also felt that despite the regular season's rocky start, it was great to end on a high note. A senior day win and an RMAC championship. I'm happy to get six in a row, he added, adding how he hopes Mines sustains this success in future years. It ain't easy to do. It takes a good program to do that. Looking back, moving forward, Ilyoser, who's from France, recalled transferring from Kentucky's Camp- Campbellsville University to Mines in 2020-21. He expressed gratitude for how his teammates and the program welcomed him and supported him over the past three years. Mines is everything I was hoping for, he said, one of his favorite memories as an ore digger, he described, was a second-half goal off a scorpion kick during the spring 2021 season. He said he was interviewed about it on after Minds Athletic posted it on Instagram. For Dougherty, it was beating the Colorado Mesa Mavericks 4-3 on their home field during the spring 2021 RMAC tournament. The Mavericks have great fans, loud fans, but we were able to come out with a victory in overtime, he continued, that was the most fun game highlight I've had so far, but hopefully there's more to come. The future is bright not only for the Ordigers as a team, but the soon-to-be 8s graduates as well. Simmelsberger already has a post-graduation job lined up, but he's optimistic he could continue playing soccer at a high level instead. For now, though, he's focused on the Ordiggers postseason tournaments. We're going to keep going, and keep going hard, Simmelsberger continued, no stopping. Accessibility upgrades planned at Red Rocks Amphitheater plans more, better spots for those who have, who are hearing impaired or have mobility issues by Deb Hurley-Brobst. Natalie Ostberg of Pine loves to attend concerts at Red Rocks Amphitheater. The 29-year-old loves all genres of music, according to her mom, Laurel, who figures Natalie has been to at least 100 concerts since 2002. She's rocked out to Earth, Wind & Fire, Cindy Lauper, Arlo Guthrie, Stevie Nicks, and many more. Natalie, diagnosed with cerebral palsy, uses a wheelchair. The Ostbergs were at Red Rocks and Morrison on October 18th to learn more about proposed changes to accessible seating at the amphitheater, hoping it would become accessible to even more people. Denver is planning to improve And expand wheelchair accessible seating in the front row by removing the bench seating and improving the ramp access to the first first row to provide more room for wheelchairs and those moving along the row. In addition, some seats in rows 2 and 3 will be earmarked for those with mobility issues, such as people with walkers and canes and other seats will be earmarked for people who are hearing impaired to give them better access to interpreters. Improvements will be made to shuttle parking access, and a ramp will be constructed from the front row to the stage, which will benefit events such as graduations that take place there. Plus, improvements are planned for row 70, the row at the top of the amphitheater that also has wheelchair-accessible seating. Some of the improvements will be completed in time for the 2023 concert season, while others will be completed in 2025. Margaret Miller of Arvada, who is hearing impaired, said she came to Red Rocks to learn about the plans, hoping to help improve the experience for others like her and hoping they to make a difference. They're making an effort, Miller said. They are doing more to comply with the laws. Miller explained that she attends concerts at Red Rocks periodically, though she usually sits with her friends who can hear. Frank Mango of Roxborough Park has been a Red Rocks concert goer since 1982, and his perspective changed in 2013 after he was injured and needs to use a wheelchair. Mango, who learned more about the proposed changes on October 18th, said they would be a step in the right direction. In addition to changing the venue itself, he hoped Red Rocks could do more to block scalpers from buying accessible seats to sell to able bodied customers. Mango was one of six plaintiffs in a discrimination lawsuit filed in 2017 over being overcharged for tickets. Three months ago, the Justice Department ordered the city of Denver to pay nearly $48,000 in refunds to about 1,800 people who bought tickets for wheelchair-accessible seats at 178 shows." The Americans with Disabilities Act doesn't allow venues to charge higher prices for seats that are accessible to people who use wheelchairs. Red Rocks has accessible seats for its events in the front and last row. Venues like Red Rocks that physically cannot make accessible seating available in all parts of the theater must price the tickets as though the seats were proportionally distributed. According to the settlement, the Department of Justice found more than 10% of people purchasing wheelchair-accessible seats were charged more than they should have been under ADA rules. Some paid $130 more per ticket for their seats. Allison Butler, director of Denver's Division of Disability Rights, Human Rights, and Community Partnerships since March, understood the accessibility needs at Red Rocks before because... Before she took the new position, because she represented those plaintiffs in the discrimination claim. When Barker joined the Division of Disability Rights, among her first questions was, What can we do to help? Her division began asking those with disabilities who attend Red Rocks for ideas on how to make their experience better. Having more seats in a fully accessible row one can be a game changer to people, she said. Red Rocks Amphitheater was open to the public in 1941 and seats 9,500. With 192 steps to get from row 1 to row 70, plus the steps to get up to the venue itself, concertgoers get a workout just to be in the venue. Rotian Liang ADA Architectural Access Manager for Denver's Division of Disability Rights, explained that three things must be considered as the city makes changes to the amphitheater. Following Americans with Disabilities laws and the wishes of the users while understanding the functionality of Red Rocks. Most important, he noted, we won't want to strip away what makes Red Rocks, Red Rocks. pumpkins aplenty pumpkin proceeds benefit habitat for humanity staff report the jeffco transcript hundreds of pumpkins line the street for sale in front of mile high church at alameda avenue and garrison street in lakewood the pumpkins are a major fundraiser for local habitat for humanity the sale is entirely directed and staffed by volunteers the pumpkins sell for $1 to about $35, with the average price at about $12. The pumpkins are grown on and purchased from a Navajo reservation in New Mexico and trucked to Colorado. Pumpkins come in a variety of shapes, sizes, and types, from traditional pumpkins, pie pumpkins, small pumpkins, through large white pumpkins, and other non-traditional pumpkins. The pumpkin patch is open daily from 10 a.m. until dusk through October 31st. A second Habitat for Humanity Pumpkin site is open in Arvada at Trinity Presbyterian Church at 78th Street and Wadsworth Avenue. 102-year-old World War II vet in Colorado shares stories. Leo Lewis was master sergeant in army air corps by kyle cook and brian willey rocky mountain pbs in the arvada press leo lewis is glad that his army jacket still fits when rocky mountain pbs visited the 102 year old lewis in his lakewood home the former master sergeant sat on a recliner with a blanket on his lap, proudly pointing at the stripes on his left arm. I had a lot of fun with these guys, Lewis said, flipping through a photo album of his time spent overseas. He said that when you've been out of the military as long as he has, quote, it's difficult to remember so many of the names of the guys that served under you. Lewis was born on June 9th, 1920. In the small town of Butte, Nebraska. One of six children, he experienced tragedy at a young age when he was twelve years old. His mother died in a house fire, and Lewis was subsequently put in foster care. After graduating from high school in Alliance, Nebraska, Lewis earned a football scholarship at the University of Nebraska. But in the winter of his sophomore year, on december twentieth, nineteen forty one, Leo enlisted in the Army Air Corps as a private. Lewis worked his way up the ranks, and on July 15, 1942, he was deployed. Quote, and nobody would tell us where that assignment was, Lewis recalled. Two weeks later, Lewis and his group arrived in Karachi, India. This was before Pakistan gained its independence from British India. Lewis was a field director for the China-Burma-India Air Service Command. Two of his brothers also served during World War II, one in the Army and another in the Navy. I actually enjoyed serving my country in 1941, Lewis said. Things were a little bit different then, but we have a good Air Force. After the war, Lewis returned to Nebraska and got married. He then moved to Colorado to attend the University of Colorado Boulder, where he played football once again. Lewis had two children and started a business selling and repairing televisions in Denver, but once televisions no longer relied on vacuum tubes for operation, Lewis closed the business and transitioned to construction, where he had great success. His current home in Lakewood is one that he built. Today, Lewis has four grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. One of his granddaughters, Donette, told Rocky Mountain PBS that Lewis, quote, set a great example of working hard to get things you want, and most importantly, be grateful for your family and country. As for the next generation of servicemen and women, Lewis' advice is simple. When you join the service, concentrate on your basic training, and you'll be happy that you did, because you'll be able to advance your rank in the military if you do that. More than 16 million Americans served in World War II, Today, fewer than 170,000 are still alive, and according to the National World War II Museum, close to 200 World War II veterans pass away each day. This is why, for Lewis, it's important that he remembers his time overseas and that he shares stories with his family. Looking through his photo albums, Lewis said, Sometimes I don't really comprehend how far back that really was. This story is from Rocky Mountain PBS, a nonprofit public broadcaster providing community stories across Colorado over the air and online, used by permission. For more and to support Rocky Mountain PBS, visit rmpbs.org. U.S. Senate candidates debates mental health for first time ever by Jennifer Brown, the Colorado Sun. U.S. Senate's Senator Michael Bennett and his Republican challenger Joe Odia vowed during a debate October 18th to push for programs that would boost the behavioral health workforce and dispatch more therapists on 911 calls. The forum at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus marked the first time that candidates vying to represent the state in the U.S. Senate took a debate stage to take questions exclusively on mental health. That doesn't mean that politics didn't creep into the conversation. Bennett interrupted Odea once to slam him for not supporting the American Rescue Plan. They sparred briefly on gun laws, and Odea, a Denver construction company owner, Hammered Bennett on crime rates, inflation, and border control. They were bound to try to get in some political jabs as it was their first debate. On their vision for mental health care. Both agreed mental health, particularly for children, is at a crisis point in Colorado and that the state has a severe shor- shortage of residential treatment beds and mental health workers. Odea said he would advocate for a federal program that would make it easier for people interested in working in mental health and substance abuse treatments to get jobs in the field at the same time they work toward college degrees. Employers could help pay for their education, he said. Bennett touted his, quote, Suicide and Crisis Outreach Prevention Enforcement Enhancement Act, which would promote the national crisis line and increase the number of crisis centers nationwide, as well as a white paper he wrote with U.S. Senator John Cornyn, a Texas Republican, that Bennett called a, quote, blueprint for what mental health ought to look like. Quote, we're facing an epidemic of mental health in Colorado and across this country as a result of an economy that has for 50 years, has worked incredibly well for the top 10% 10% of Americans but almost for nobody else the senator said the opioid epidemic on top of that covid on top of that social media bennett also co-sponsored federal legislation that led to the 988 mental health crisis, the 988 mental health crisis out hotline which went live in july Odea, however, said policies supported by Bennett during his 13 years in office have contributed to the mental health crisis. What's working in America is not working, Odea said. Partisanship is poisoning our country. My opponent votes with Joe Biden 90% of the time. It's not working. Inflation is at a 40-year high. It's not working. Crime is at an all-time high. Not working. Homelessness in Colorado is rampant. It's not working. And this we add to... The list mental health, especially for kids, it's not working. O'Dea also blamed failures in the education system for the youth mental health crisis, saying he would push for federal regulation that would allow families to choose any school for their child. Kids have to start have to have a future, and that future starts with an education, he said. The closest thing to magic in the United States is school choice. Put them somewhere where they can succeed. We can get the mental health at those institutions. We need to be preventative and not reactive. On growing the mental health network, on the mental health workforce, Odeas, who went through an apprenticeship program, said Colorado can grow its workforce of mental health and substance use counselors by encouraging businesses to hire workers as they simultaneously attend college. It needs to be a partnership with business, he said. It needs to be a partnership with colleges. We need to treat it as an intern program so that we can have businesses help us get more people into this industry. Bennett pointed out that Odea was against the massive COVID relief bill passed by Congress that sent millions of dollars to Colorado to support workforce development, including internship programs. The American Rescue Plan provided about $600 million for Colorado to recruit and train more behavioral health workers. Quote, it's not government in the way this is government resources being used by the public sector and the private sector, Bennett said. He's quite right that we need to address that, but that's exactly what these pieces of legislation do. Bennett also brought up the state's lack of affordable housing, which makes it difficult for workers to live in rural and mountain areas in particular. We have no workforce housing, he said. All there are communities all over the states where there are no mental health workers, because there is no housing on substance abuse treatment. When asked how he would increase access to substance abuse treatment, Odea said that the government hasn't, quote, attacked the supply side and blamed border insecurity. He also said he would zero in on high-potency marijuana products and that he is against Proposition 122, which would decriminalize psychedelic mushrooms in Colorado. Quote, Right now we have a border that is leaking fentanyl at record levels, he said. Colorado is number two in drug overdoses, and the reason is we because we haven't attacked the supply side this situation is being caused by a border that hasn't been more that hasn't been secured we don't need more drugs in our society it's killing our kids a photo distributed by the grand junction police department shows counterfeit fentanyl pills that look like 30 milligrams of oxycodone the rate of increase in fentanyl deaths in Colorado from twenty nineteen to twenty twenty one ranked second in the country according to families against fentanyl. Colorado's per capita fentanyl death rate, however, ranks thirty-third. Bennett slammed O'Dea for not answering the question, then said he supports more drug treatment in jails. People can't get treatment, he said, and if somebody and if it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to lock somebody up and not provide any treatment on who's better at tackling mental health. Bennett said he looks forward to continuing his work on the opioid crisis and amplifying incentives in the insurance system so that physical and mental health are better integrated. Quote, this country has been uniquely addicted to opioids compared to any other country in the world, the senator said, and we haven't yet responded to that challenge. He also vowed to ramp up funding for mental health beds, saying there was, quote, a chronic shortage all over the state, especially in rural areas. We are just going to have to fund it, and we're going to have to find ways to pay for it, he said. But Odea said it's time to, quote, start from scratch and stop throwing money at homelessness programs that aren't producing results and time to focus more on mental health prevention. We need new programs that basically address this before it's a crisis, he said. We've got record inflation, record crime, record drug overdoses, out-of-control homelessness here in Colorado and an education crisis, a mental health crisis, and suicides at an all-time high. Let's stop the reckless spending and direct it at our kids. Children's Hospital Mental Health Crisis The Forum hosted by Healthier Colorado, Inseparable, and Children's Hospital Colorado, put the candidates on the spot to answer questions about the complex mental health system and the current state of crisis. Colorado has about 2,000 fewer pediatric residential treatment beds than it did about a decade ago, in part because of a major federal push to keep kids in homes instead of institutions. But as funding for residential treatment was slashed, Colorado did not build up its network of therapeutic foster homes or community mental health services. Today, the state has about 300 residential treatment beds. At the same time, the number of children and teens seeking emergency psychiatric treatment at Children's Hospital in Aurora has skyrocketed. U.S. Senator Michael Bennett left, and his Republican challenger, Joe Odea. Colorado sun photos. This year, January to June, psychiatric emergency room visits were up 88% from the same period in 2019, said Jessica Hawks, clinical director of the hospital's Pediatric Mental Health Institute. Suicide is the leading cause of death for teens in Colorado. Quote, the psychiatric crisis continues, she said. We are just beginning to see the initial effects of how the pandemic has impacted our youth mental health. We were actually in a mental health crisis for our youth even before the pandemic. We are just fortunate that now we're in a place where we have a national platform to really talk about these issues. Zach Zaslow, Interim Vice President for Population Health and Advocacy at Children's, said the lack of residential beds means children are stuck at the hospital for longer than needed. Kids end up waiting in our inpatient unit for weeks, months, sometimes even over a year, he said. They are without their families. They're without their friends. Sometimes they are getting worse because they are in a restrictive setting. They should be closer to home. Governor Jared Polis and his GOP challenger Heidi Gannal were invited to the forum, but the governor's declined. Other sponsors included CBS News, Mindsight News, Colorado Public Radio, and The Colorado Sun. This story is from The Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support The Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. I-70 at Floyd Hill project gets rolling. CDOT broke ground on its project to improve and expand a problem area of I-70 by Olivia Jewell Love. Officials broke ground October 19th on the I-70 Floyd Hill improvement project, a much anticipated series of improvements to problem areas of I-70. The project, which is now fully funded, will cost $700 million. The features will include a third travel lane on westbound I-70 from the top of Floyd Hill to the Mountain Express Lane, westbound and eastbound curve flattening and safety improvements, more than three miles of Greenway Trail improvements, a new frontage road between Central City Parkway and US-6 interchanges wildlife crossings and fencing, an eastbound I-70 climbing lane for heavy commercial or slow-moving vehicles from the bottom of Floyd Hill to the homestead exit and more, according to the Colorado Department of Transportation. Some of the first improvements will be the U.S. 40 and Floyd Hill roundabouts, with construction slated for the fall 2022 to fall 2023, The I-70 and Genesee Wildlife Crossing, with construction scheduled for fall 2022 to early 2024. U.S. 40 Empire Wildlife Crossing, with construction slated for summer 2023 to fall 2024. And the El Rancho West parking lot for electric vehicle charging, park and ride, and bus staying Pegasus stops, with construction scheduled for spring 2024 to fall 2024, according to CDOT. Drivers can expect delays caused by construction, but officials say this project is the best fix for the 19th century technology that was used to construct I-70 and the tunnels. At the groundbreaking on October 19th, Governor Polis was present to express his excitement for the beginning of the project. This is one of the first, if not the first, project funded by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, Polis explained. The INFRA grant was received on September 9th, and the project could begin so quickly because CDOT was what officials called, quote, shovel-ready. Polis was joined by other officials, including Senators Bennett and Hickenlooper, U.S. Representative John Neguse, State Representative Lisa Cutter, Clear Creek Commissioner Randy Willock, and others. Senator Bennett was complimentary of the teamwork it took to start this project and said it's all thanks to Colorado's can-do-it attitude. Quote, Colorado really is ready. We know how to build stuff. We know how to get stuff done, he said. Bennett also explained that the grant for this project is the biggest of the Colorado Department of Transportation, has gotten from the federal government in the history of the country. Clear Creek County Commissioner Randy Wheelock had a special connection to the project. Not only has he been involved with transportation issues during his time on the board, but he revealed at the groundbreaking that he actually helped construct the original highway years ago. I have to take credit that I actually worked on this highway over 50 years ago. I worked on the Eisenhower Tunnel, he said. Shoshana Liu is the executive director of CDOT. She said the groundbreaking marks moving forward with meaningful improvement. I-70 plays such a vital role in quality of life, she said. CDOT expects around a five-year timeline for the completion of the project in its entirety. For more information and renderings, CDOT updates its sites with studies, construction updates, and more. Lasley Elementary hosts Final Emory Community Meeting by Andrew Fraley. About 60 people gathered at Lasley Elementary in Lakewood October 18th to ask questions and speak their minds at the final community meeting regarding possible elementary school closures. Lasley Elementary is slated to absorb nearby Emory Elementary as part of a consolidation plan presented to the Jefferson County Board of Education by the Public School District, of which the final vote is on November 10th. The community meetings were a chance to raise concerns. One large concern was whether Emory's dual-language program would also move to Lasley, which Lisa Mahana, Emory's principal, affirmed it would be, while acknowledging it was harder than just saying, quote, you're dual-language school now. Another concern reflected in the first Emory community meeting and commented on by the Board of Education is a previous meeting of theirs, is that a decision has already been made by the conversation being with this assumption of consolidation rather than discussing how to make it work as is. No decision has been made, said Denetris Hill, the community superintendent for both Emory and Lasley. This is the parent information community feedback session. You're all here asking questions. Key people from the district are here recording your questions. This feedback is making its way back to the powers that be so that they can make an informed decision. There will also be one-hour public hearings in front of the Board of Education on October 24th through, through the 27th and on November 2nd and 3rd. Sign up to speak will open five days prior to the date of the hearing and speakers will be heard in order of sign up. According to Lisa Rolau, Chief of Communications and Strategy for Jefferson County Public Schools, the first seven spots will be reserved for current staff and family affected by the possible closures. And they estimate enough time for 15 speakers with three minutes to speak each asked again is in the previous emory community meeting was why not consolidate Lasley into emory a larger building that could hold more students tara pena chief of family school and community partnerships at jeffco public Schools, said that besides the main criteria of utilization used for all the possibly closing schools lazily is an elementary school emory is a middle school this is, in terms of size and design, she said, pointing at something as small as the toilet sizes, being more appropriate for elementary children. I want to apologize on behalf of the district that this is another disruption to this articulation area, Pena said. Our hope is that we, by bringing two communities together, we will be able to provide all of your hopes and then some. Survey shows veteran homelessness decreased 31%. The number of veterans who are homeless in Metro Denver decreased more than 30% from 2020 to 2022 despite an overall increase in the region's homeless population, according to new survey data released October 20th by the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative. Veterans have historically been overrepresented in homelessness in Metro Denver, Colorado, and across the country. However, federal and local governments have been working together to increase housing resources specifically for the population. Quote, the government has stepped up their investment in resolving veteran homelessness. We've been seeing steady declines as those investments have kicked up said Kathy Alderman, Chief Communications and Public Policy Officer for the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. The Obama administration made it a top priority to dramatically increase awareness about veterans' high risk of becoming homeless. And in 2013, the Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Department of Veterans Affairs announced almost $70 million in grants to assist in addressing the issue across the country through rental assistance, case management, and clinical services provided by the VA. In mid-September, the VA announced it had awarded another $137 million in grants to help house veterans and their families who were homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. Many states, including Colorado, are also targeting veterans who are homeless and working with an organization, Community Solutions which runs a campaign built for, built for zero that works to end homelessness among subgroups, including veterans. Quote, It's a subset of the population of people experiencing homelessness that really can be targeted and evaluated, Alderman said. And so we've seen this trend over the last few years. When you increase investment in resolving veterans' homelessness, veterans' homelessness goes down when you target resources to better track evaluate and connect veteran resource services together we see better outcomes in veteran homelessness if we looked at the same model and did it for families experiencing homelessness or youth experiencing homelessness or people who were experiencing chronic homelessness we would see the same results the colorado coalition for the homeless has several programs focused on serving veterans including a housing development It opened during the pandemic called the Veterans Renaissance Apartments at Fitzsimmons in Aurora and through its fort, Lion, supportive program in southeastern Colorado for people who are homeless and have a substance use disorder. Quote, if we can do it for veterans, we can do it for families, for individuals, for youth. If we're prepared and we have the political will to make these investments, Alderman said. The data, released Thursday, is from the annual point-in-time count conducted January 24th and included people staying in shelters and outdoors in the seven-county metro Denver area. It showed an overall increase of 784 people experiencing homelessness compared with pre-pandemic levels in 2020, the last time the region completed a comprehensive count. The count is only a snapshot of homelessness. Many variables could result in an undercount, Metro Denver Homeless Initiative leaders said. On the night of the count, trained volunteers and staff cruised around local streets interviewing people and families who are homeless using a standardized survey before the results were released months later. People living on the streets, in shelters, and in transitional housing programs were counted. People at risk of becoming homeless, such as those living with friends and family or in a motel, are not included in the count. In January 2020, about six weeks before the beginning of the pandemic and the last time a comprehensive survey was conducted, there were 6,104 people counted who were homeless. The region did not count because people staying outdoors in 2021 because of safety concerns related to COVID-19. This year, 6,884 people were counted, a 12.8% increase. According to the polls, 4,806 people stayed in emergency shelters, transitional housing, or safe haven programs. and 2078, people slept on the streets or in places not meant for human habitation. The number of people staying in shelters remained fairly consistent, while the number of people living on the streets significantly increased. One in three people were homeless for the first time. An overwhelming majority of people surveyed 5,317 were single adults, age 25 or older, with no children. Surveyors also identified 1,207 families, defined as an adult age 25 or older, with at least one child with them, and 360 people age 18 to 24 who were unaccompanied or parenting. Of those counted, 37% reported a mental health condition, 30% reported a chronic health condition, and 16% reported experiencing domestic violence. Black people, Native Americans, Alaska Natives, multiracial people, and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders are significantly overrepresented in the region's homeless population, according to the survey. Quote, the overrepresentation of people of color, specifically black and Native Americans among those experiencing homelessness, is critical to the response, said Jamie Reif, executive director of the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, the regional system that coordinates services and housing for people experiencing homelessness. Quote, homelessness is an issue of race and must be approached through this lens. While the count can help human service leaders understand homelessness on a single night, a comprehensive system disseminating real-time data regionally is the ultimate goal, Reif said. The region has made strides in decreasing its reliance on the one-night count. Instead, providers and municipal leaders are working to gather to improve participation with the region's homeless management information system to make data about those experiencing homelessness accessible each day. Boulder recently became the first community in the region to reach a new milestone. The county can now track every adult experiencing homelessness by name in real time. Only a small number of communities across the country have reached that same milestone, according to Thursday's news release. While the region was able to locate and count 6,884 people on a single night, the number of people who are homeless in the region is likely closer to 31,000 throughout the course of the year, Rife said. This data highlights the dynamic nature of homelessness and the importance of real-time data to allow the region to coordinate effectively and allocate resources efficiently, she said. The organization releases annually the State of Homelessness Report with more data about regional homelessness. Infographics reported by county and an interactive dashboard are available at the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative website. This story is from the Colorado Sun. DFF45 brings the world's stories to Denver. Coming attractions... Clark Reader. There's a reason that during the worst parts of the COVID-19 pandemic, so many people turned to the film world for solace and inspiration. The Denver Film Festival is aiming to achieve that same entertaining and enlightening power in its 45th season, which is returning to its pre-pandemic form of entirely in-person screening. Quote, We have the return of the real festival environment this year, said Matthew Campbell, the festival's artistic director. We were just able to have a couple parties and other events last year, so we didn't have as much conversing after the films as we normally would. Now we're able to host more events, foster the community experience, and be a catalyst for conversation. The 45th Denver Film Festival runs this year from Wednesday, November 2nd through Sunday, November 13th. Screenings and events will be held in several downtown locations, primarily the C Film Center, 2510 East Colfax Avenue in Denver, as well as the Ellie Calkins Opera House, Denver Botanic Gardens, AMC 9 plus Colorado 10 and the Tattered Cover East Colfax. Some of the big films being showcased this year include the opening night red carpet presentation of Armageddon Time, which is directed by James Gray and features Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins. Sam Mendes' Empire of Light, Sarah Polly's Women Talking, and Maria Schrader's She Said are all films, garnering early awards... Buzz that will be screened during the festival. You also won't want to miss The Whale, the Brendan Fraser film, written by Samuel D. Hunter, who will be on hand to receive the festival's Excellence in Writing Award. Hunter's play, which the film is based on, had its premiere in Denver, so this will be a special event. Quote, These special presentations are great, but people will have the opportunity to see these films after the fact, Campbell said. But what's great about the festival is there are many films that this might be your only chance to see. In addition to quality stories from the world over, the team at Denver Film works to highlight Colorado stories like The Holly, which tells the story of a shooting case involving activist Terrence Roberts and the gentrification of the city, and My Sister Liv a film that follows two Colorado sisters coming of age with all the pressures of social media. With several parties to attend, as well as VR filmmaking experiences, there truly is something for everyone at the festival. Quote, The audiences here in Denver are really adventurous and are really discerning, Campbell said. Those who attend are going to come away having a great time, but also potentially learning something and getting a new outlook on film. We're here to expand minds and create dialogue and empathy. To see the full lineup, get tickets, and more, visit denverfilm.org slash denverfilmfestival slash dff45. Music and shopping at LSO's annual Pops Concert. One of the Lakewood Symphony Orchestra's biggest events is just around the corner with its annual Pops Concert and Silent Auction, which is held at the Lakewood Cultural Center, 470 South Allison Parkway, at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, November 10th. The music the symphony will be performing includes Sadie's Gymnopedia No. 2 and selections from Phantom of the Opera and Grease. Attendees can also bid on a range of items, including the opportunity to conduct the orchestra, an African safari, and more. Get tickets and details at lakewoodsymphony.org. Salt highlights the range of contemporary dance. Contemporary dance can be a difficult art form to describe, but when done right, its power is undeniable. That moving power is exactly what Salt Contemporary Dance is bringing to the Lakewood Cultural Center, 470 South Allison Parkway at 7:30 p.m. on Saturday, October 29th. According to provided information, the company performs a repertoire of work by world-renowned choreographers Michaela Taylor, Isan Rustum, and Joni McDonald. Get tickets at Lakewood.org/slash. LCCP presents. Rather, LCC presents. And Clark's Concert of the Week Brett McKenzie at the Ogden Theatre. You might know Brett McKenzie is half of New Zealand's fourth most popular guitar paced dingo bongo a cappella rap funk comedy folk duo, The Flight of the Concords. Just a month ago, he released his first solo album, Songs Without Jokes. And I'm delighted to report that it is full of the same sly wit that you can find in the work of songwriting legends like Randy Newman. In support of the album, McKenzie is stopping by the Ogden Theater, 935 East Colfax Avenue in Denver at 8 p.m. on Wednesday, November 2nd. In addition to cuts from the new record, He'll be performing songs he's written for The Muppets, The Simpsons, and more. Get tickets for what is certain to be a delightful evening at Ogdentheater.com. Clark's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at Hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the jefferson county news my name is gregory haddock if you enjoyed this program please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777